Welcome to Red Book Club. Today we're going to be reading My Answer to an American Questionnaire by Praskovia Angelina, or more commonly known as Pasha Angelina. So Pasha wrote this text as a response to a letter she received from an American encyclopedia who wanted to put together information about distinguished people from around the world. And she really took issue with the idea of who is distinguished and who is important and the view that the American Encyclopedia was putting forward that leaders of, for example, the UN and important political people and businessmen were more important than ordinary workers, of which she was for her entire life. So this whole text is pretty much a response to that. It's a really good text. I just heard about it for the first time a few days ago, and I'm excited to read it. So we're going to start off with a round of introductions where you can say your names, your pronouns, and one trait of Pasha's which you really connected to, or one point in the story that really resonated with you. Hi, I'm Andrew, he, him pronouns, and my favorite part is when Pasha's describing like her first time using a tractor, and how like it feels to finally, you know, sink the tiller into the ground and start doing work that uh, she had prepared so much for, because like, when I first moved to Vermont, I, you know, I had no idea how to ride a tractor, and that was like, as soon as I said that, people were like, what? You can't drive a tractor? Well, get the hell on there. We have to teach you right now. I just remember that that same feeling. It was such a cool description that she put in the book there. I'm Jess. They, them. I think one part that resonated the most with me was when Pasha's talking about when her brother had left, or basically when his position as a tractor driver um, had become available that she took the job like she said she wanted it and she took it and she said something to the effect of I wanted a job and I set out to take it and I took it and it wasn't that easy it was very hard but that is what happened and I appreciated the way she worded that because I, I felt like that was almost exactly the way I would have the way I would have worded it and probably how I would have viewed it as well if it were me. Hey I'm Tarichi he him pronouns and the, my favorite part in the text was when they were like, quote unquote, evacuating to the east and at multiple occasions, some like military officers or some men just wanted to give the group and her shit and she just didn't take it and just yelled back and screamed back and demanded like the respect that she was owed and that the group was owed and felt really good reading that. Talia, she, her. The thing that really, st I really like that part, Tadichi, uh, but I also really liked her description of her first trip to the fields. I'm just going to read it. It was rather cold, so much so that my cheeks burned. My tractor clattered on, and every now and again I turned around to see my first furrow curling over the plowshare like a black wave from which a light vapor was rising. I wanted to sing, to shout at the top of my voice. And that fucking, like, Oh, that's like Minnesota. That remi reminds that. me. Oh, that's like, that is my childhood right there. I can just see the cornfields right now. Like, I could feel how cold it, how, like that early morning dew and the coldness. And oh, it's so good. Like, oh, perfect. <laughs> uh, this is Connor, he, him pronouns. And I think my favorite part of the text was the first the first section of it really like talking through her early life and 
the struggles that she and her family had to go through. Like she started working for a kulak when she was eight years old and just the struggles of like industrialization and the improvement of agriculture but like every step of the way was a fight to get there all right so i guess we can jump right into the text into the beginning where um i think she starts right about 1919 where where uh, she's talking about the early efforts of collectivization and and the pushback from the kulaks and that whole section of it was just such a great illustration of like what rural existence was for farming people in the USSR. And, and I think she said specifically she lived in uh, the Donbass of Ukraine. I, like it was just a really illustrative story about what the experience was for these people who were learning to collectivize farms and, and the, the pushback they faced from the, the Kirkholes or the Kulaks. And I think at one point in this section, uh, she talks about how she, she and a few others were shot at like from behind um, when they were walking to a, a party meeting in a nearby town. It was, it was amazing. And I think even before it reaches this section, like her response to receiving this letter in the post, which someone translated for her from America, asking her to contribute a biographical account of her life for this encyclopedia, it's quite telling of her personality and the general outlook of citizens of the Soviet Union. She's talking about um, what the questionnaire is asking of her, and she says, The questionnaire is so detailed that I am even asked to give such particulars as the date of my marriage, or for example, my mother's maiden name. But this detailed questionnaire does not contain the chief question, vis-a-vis what were the circumstances that enabled me, a former illiterate farmhand, to become a legislator, a deputy to the Supreme Soviet. This question was put to me in another letter from America that I received long before the questionnaire. That letter was sent to me by a farmer named Benjamin Martin, a native of Alabama. Concerning his own affairs, he wrote very briefly. He put it in two words, very bad. And I knew without the translator telling me that this means bieda, and bieda is trouble in Russian. Martin was not curious to know the date of my marriage. He wanted to know how it was possible for a person in the Soviet Union to have a career like mine, farmhands, tractor driver, legislator. And so I think the central point of like why she felt the need to respond to this letter was that if you took the American Encyclopedia's method of kind of collecting data on these people for the encyclopedia, it would put her in the same category as some wealthy businessman who could have been born like he could have been born poor and then you know, pulled himself up by his bootstraps, made his way to the top and became rich. But her argument was that, whereas for that person, it would say he was from the people and then he made his way to the top. She said that she still, like, she still was one of the people and that they all pulled themselves up together. Definitely what resonated the most with me. And she says it, she comes back to the point several times that the story of her success is the story of the success of the people. And without the successes of her country as a whole, she would not have been able to have the success that she did have. Yeah, I, I really liked that point. And, and like you said, it's, it's a recurring theme throughout the text, how, like you said, the bourgeois view is, is like rising out of the people and becoming something better. Whereas the way she wants to describe herself and the, and the proper way of framing her, like, her existence would be to be that she was of the people and all the people rose with her, like the way it should be. Exactly. Like the thing about it is also that like she wrote it in like the late forties or it was published in 1951. And it was to contrast like the, her experience in the Soviet union and compared to farmers in the United States. But even now, 60, 70 years later, in the Western world, this kind of career from farmhand to legislator is unthinkable. 
and similar to you know the story of Yuri Gagarin from Soil to the Stars, like another one of those just beautiful stories of the heroes of the USSR are, are people, not like these gods you put up on a pedestal. Right. That actually was the parallel that was drawn in another conversation we just had about this. I know, like Talia and I both, as soon as we saw this text, we both were like, oh my God, everybody read this. And so we were sharing quotes. But that was the instant connection was to Yuri Gagarin, who was the son of farmers, the grandson of farmers, the great grandson of farmers. And basically this the way that he worded how he got to space is exactly the same way. Like I applied, I wanted to be a cosmonaut. I did the training, I completed it and I was ready. So we did it. And it was just, they were the right person for the job, just like Pasha. Pasha was the right person for the job. When the tractor position became open, she said she wanted it. They doubted her because there had never been, I think she used the word tractorist or something like that, that there had never been anyone like that so far. She was the only woman driver of tractors at the time. And they questioned her and she said, well, I'd like to do it. I know a little bit about it. So she learned the information and she tested and she passed it and they told her to be careful. And that's it. All of a sudden, now she's a tractor driver. And now tractor drivers aren't just men. Yeah, and from that, she like raised an entire army almost of tractor, tractor S's, as she would put it. What's interesting to me is that it's 1920s Russia, or Ukraine in that, in that case. It's not like they had decades of male tractor, tractor drivers like to form an opinion of to make it a gender job but it's just like they barely had them the way she talks about it 10 years ago they all worked manually they didn't have any machines and like in the span of like a couple of years it was already at the point where like women were just not considered for that at all and she like immediately broke it and then they were the best by far yeah i love the way she describes like the old piece of shit ford tractor that she had to learn on and then all the other tractors she ends up using over her whole experience and talking about how the Russian ones were just phenomenal and simple and they just worked and they were good and how she like trained on the worst tractor of all. And that was like her trial by fire when, when learning her craft as like an equipment operator, I just found that all really cool. Like I, I love hearing operators talk about how oh, this, this machine's a, a pain in the ass because of whatever slop in the bucket, this or that problem. And it's just really funny to see that in the context of 19, 20, you know, 22 or 23 at this point. And so just to add to what people were saying earlier about the kind of going from the soil to the stars, like uh, Yuri Gagarin, or in her own life, she was a peasant farmer from as soon as she was born, she was born into a peasant farming family. She went on to be elected to the Supreme Soviet three times in 37, 46 and 1950. And she was awarded with the title of Hero of Socialist Labor. She won the Stalin Prize. She won the gold medal at the Agricultural Exhibition of the Soviet Union. I, I saw two different sources. One said two orders of Lenin and one said three orders of Lenin. And the order of Lenin was the highest civilian honor that you can be awarded in the Soviet Union. And also the order of the Red Banner of Labor and a number of other medals. So she was like a really, really well-decorated person. But in like classic Soviet fashion, she was she just had such humility and didn't place importance on these things. What she placed importance on was the effect that these things had on all the people around her and like how it was thanks to all of the people around her that they managed to achieve these things. 
I like the added point that she actually met Kripskaya. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and she said, Kripskaya said he dreamed of Russia having 100,000 tractors. And that's what really, I don't know, I thought that was very cool. That also kind of hit my heart a little bit. She also says that the Kolkovs that they developed when they expropriated the Kulaks from their region, they named it the Lenin Kolkovs. So they named it after Lenin. She talks about how these collective farms, they named them after things that were so inspirational and that that is why they named it Lenin. Some of the other names were Forward to Communism, Lenin's Behest for Culture, and Happy Life. So she said that it was like even the names of them were really hopeful. It was a really hopeful time to be alive. So just to put into perspective why we're doing an episode about tractors, tractor drivers, it was a really huge invention. Like It's easy for us 100 years later to look back on it and just think of them as something extremely common. But there's a quote there where she says, to me, as well as to the whole of our Soviet people, the term tractor means not only a traction machine with an internal combustion engine, but something more. The tractor helped us to change the entire life of the countryside. It wiped out the field strip boundary lines that had been like scars on the living body of the land. It led millions of peasants into the collective farm way of life. Yeah, just like, I, I love the way she phrases everything, just like beautiful and illustrative of how something as simple as a tractor can be a super liberatory image and word for people. Yeah, she loved farming. Like what Talia was saying earlier, like it really just fills you with that feeling of just being in the countryside and loving every second of it. Like she lived for it and she built her life around it. And she never felt like she needed to get a higher position. Like people would say to her, you've been in the same position for 10, 20 years or something now. How come you haven't been promoted? And she's like, because this is what I do and I do it well. Why do I need to do something else? talks about her brothers too and her friends and colleagues and how people that she's worked with have you know risen to jobs of more responsibility but that she will she's a tractor driver and she loves it and that in a collective society that every job is just as important as another and so her post as a tractor driver was so vital to the people and that's why she talks about how these medals that she's earned the recognitions that she's gotten are only because the people recognize the contribution she's made to the collective and that makes her proud not the fact that she is that she's gained fame she talks quite a bit about the concept of fame and what that means but i don't want to forget about the fact that there's this whole instance where she is this tractor driver a tractoress um, who is driving um, tractors as the only woman and she thinks, well, why wouldn't there be more women to drive tractors? Shouldn't more women be driving tractors? And so she says, I, I don't have the quote, I didn't highlight it, but something along the lines of, because I, I knew that any just cause would be entertained by the Soviet, I went directly to them and asked them about starting a women's brigade of tractor drivers. And that they seemed more interested in the idea than her. And she talks about specifically about a man, I, I can't remember his name. I think it was Kurov. Yes. And um, she says that she wants to make sure that, that we understand that it, it wasn't that she had the good fortune of meeting a good man, but that he was a communist and he was doing the work of the party by entertaining her idea. And I feel like that 
in itself is a lesson <laughs> that we've been, you know, kind of covering in book club in general, just because we've been in this like Marxist feminism series and kind of understanding the way that moving forward, the way that men and, and um, women will react to each other or work together will be, you know, based on the good of the collective. And that's exactly what he did. He was like, that's a great idea. Because why wouldn't we want more women contributing more to the collective? I think that's really great. And I really love the story that, that she tells us about how she starts this women's brigade of tractor drivers and how they, they sat and made a list of people that they thought would make great tractor drivers. And that when they, when they brought the list up, every name was rejected immediately because girls can't drive tractors. And she says outright that they were kind of right that none of these girls had had any experience in tractor driving and that they did need to learn. And so she took it upon herself to teach. And so she taught all of these women how to drive tractors and they managed to work on this. Um, I think she, they were the Fordson tractors that, that she, she talks about how she has worked on several tractors and that she realizes now that the Fordson was by far the most complex and difficult machine of all of them. And that's what they were driving. And so it was a, a very tedious experience for her, but she did absolutely organize this brigade of women tractor drivers. And as we're going to see in a little bit, that wasn't an easy thing to do. And there was a lot of resistance to that. And even, even before she'd had the idea to start this brigade and before she, before she ever sat on a tractor, she talks about the kind of persecution that they, that her and her family had done to them because they were communists and her whole family were communists. Like her dad's, I'm not sure if her mom was, but her mom was persecuted anyway because she was the mother of communists. And she talks about a speech that her father gave at a village meeting and she transcribes it word for word and says that she, she's remembered it her whole life. And what he said to them was, fellow villagers, do you see that heap of stones lying over there? It's a big heap but it can be scattered not only with your hands, but even with the foot. To prove his point, my father kicked a big stone that lay on top of the heap, and the whole heap collapsed. Do you see? The stones are rougher and even, but suppose you take them to build a wall, match each stone to the other, fit the projections of one into the hollows of another so that no gaps are left. If we do that, we can build a wall with these rough stones that could not be knocked over, even if five men pushed against it. We fellow villagers have been living like that heap of stones up till now, each one for himself. We ought to get together and organize a call cause. Fit man to man, like fitting the stones in a building wall. We would be as strong as a fort then. Nothing could vanquish us. I absolutely loved that speech. Like, it's so beautiful. And like, like you said, her whole family was communist. Like, the whole legacy of, throughout this whole story, it comes back over and over again. Just like, everyone she interacted with and, you know, was taught by were just so dedicated and really cared about the well-being of all the, all the other peasants and all the people around them so much. Such a beautiful story. And I just loved how, how much they pushed back, like how, how much they were accustomed to struggle. It, it was just like second nature to them. Like they, they wouldn't give up on things. She talks about how her brother and sister were going to a young communist league meeting in a neighboring village. And somebody started firing at them with a sawn off gun. And they were only like teenagers. I think she said 14, um, 14 and 16 years old. And they just had to run across the prickly grass barefoot just to get away from this guy who's shooting at them. And once they, like, once they shook this guy, they didn't just think, oh, well, we better go home. They thought, well, we better go to the meeting. We better carry on what we were doing. 
And didn't their mom get beat up too by some kulaks? Yeah, just for being other communists. Yeah, nearly to death, they said. The kukuls, which was the Ukrainian word for kulak, they, they nearly beat her mother to death just for being, the, yeah, as Jess said, the mother of communists. And so when eventually they had a village meeting about whether or not to implement a kolkhoz, a collective farm, because these things were like slowly starting to spring up in the countryside, people were scared. It wasn't that they didn't like the idea, but it's that they, they were scared to lose what they already had, or they were scared of the power that the kulaks already held. So they had a vote to see who wanted to do it. And people abstained, and the people who wanted to collectivize lost the vote. And they were jeered at the meeting. People said, go on and organize. Five cows and a couple of goats, seven families to feed on groats. You'll have a kolkhoz. But they it, they didn't let it stop them. They tried anyway, and they pitched their efforts together and made a collective farm. And from that, it started to grow and grow. And this is actually where she says that that collective, that they it was very hard for them, that they toiled day and night, that they worked very hard. And But she talks about when they were given a tractor. And that's when she was given the Fordson, or when the collective was given the Fordson, and that her brother, I think, was Ivan, Ivan, um, he was out in the field using the tractor, and a group came to watch. And that they were just fascinated with the fact that this tractor existed and that he could plow things so fast, and, and it was such a big deal. And suddenly people were interested in the collective farm and a lot of people were applying to want to be a part of it. And so I, I think that, it, I think like from the reader's perspective, that's like when she was like, oh, oh my God, tractors are so fucking cool. <laughs> and so she had decided that like that was important to her at the time. I, I mean, I don't know that she had decided that tractors were important, that she wanted to do it at the time. She, I don't think she did. But um, she recognized the vast importance of what it had on the success of the collective that they started. It's, it's kind of a beautiful example of like how our like a change in the process of production will change our relations of production, where people saw this new, more collective means of of doing agricultural labor and do, being used in a more collective way, like a tractor immediately being used in a, in a collective way and not a capitalist way. And it, it drew them to it. I think it's a really beautiful point about how our relations of production change with the changing means of production. And so does anybody want to talk about the first time she, when they first assembled this team of uh, women tractor drivers and when they met with resistance from the villagers? Um, okay. So one thing that I think was kind of important for later in the story that she talks about how the Fordson was a clumsy and complicated machine with the flywheels, spools, and bobbins. And that evidently America had palmed it off to them um, on the principle that take it, it's no use to me. And already at the time, it was regarded out of date. And if a hair got in the flywheel or if the bobbins got slightly damp, the tractor went out of commission for whole days. So that's like important, I think, to the story of what happens to her with this women's brigade of tractor drivers. I was just going to say how it comes up later on, how like how tedious these machines were ended up being a point of, you know, it, it was an example of the razor's edge that they were skating on their first time out as as women under scrutiny trying to drive these tractors and, and till the fields for the first time. They were also using just the most precarious equipment you can imagine. Yeah, weren't they like uh, leftovers from America that Americans didn't want anymore? Yes, 
Exactly. Okay, so she's talking about after they've organized this brigade of, of women tractor drivers and how they were so excited to have their maiden voyage. Um, it's best just to, just to read this part. She says, none of us, of course, were sure that everything would run smoothly from the very first, but we would not allow any thoughts to mark that festive occasion. We had spent so much time preparing for this maiden voyage. We had put some touches to our machines and had tested every detail over and over again. Suddenly, something unforeseen and terrible happened. On the outskirts of the village, a crowd of angry men met us. They barred our road and shouted in chorus, Turn back. We'll allow no female machines in our fields. We'll spoil the crops. We were all young communist leaders, or communist leaguers, and we were accustomed to pull up resistance and enemy hatred. But here, our own women, members of the collective farm, were, were reviling us. Later, of course, we became friends, and many of these women became tractor drivers themselves, but they were vicious in this first encounter. And they threatened them with violence. Uh, they were closing in around them saying, don't dare move. If you do, we'll pull your hair out and kick you out of here. And so she runs to uh, the political department. <laughs> she runs to find to the Krasny Pakar Kalkos. And so she's basically, she comes back. There's almost a riot. She has some support. They tell her to go do her work as a, as a team leader. And so um, she goes up. They try to start the tractors and they won't start. And everybody's like, well, of course they won't start because you're women. So, of course, they're panicking. I think she said they spent like 10 minutes just trying to get the tractors started, but they got them started and they drove them into the field and they tilled for hours and hours. Everyone's spirits were already dampened, but eventually people got tired of staring at them angrily and left and they had their maiden voyage. And, but it was, bad i think she said that like two people were locked up or like attacked and it was a scary situation for them because they did not expect for that to happen so yeah and right at the end of that section she talks about where i can't remember the the name of the political officer she's talking to but where she's talking about how she wasn't expecting it to be bad and and he says yeah it well it was bad because anything that's worth like having you have to fight for it so you fought today and you won obviously like it was rough for them. It was a really difficult experience. You know, fighting is never pleasant, but like, if you want to have these victories, if you want to, if you want to take the next step, you're going to have to fight for it. And I think that was like a really important uh, realization for her at this point where she, you know, she just started the first female collective of tractor operators. And, and now she's about to move on into this new generation of, of Soviet women who will be operating tractors. Yeah, I think she mentions that she, like, completely unbeknownst to her, she was the first tractor driver, and her team was the first team of women driving tractors. Yeah, she just gets swept up in this, um, in this process of industrialization. Like, she's really the the embodiment of all the successes which that had for people in the Soviet Union. And this specific instance, she was the first, but I think it's important. Just as she keeps she keeps making the parallel back to saying that her story of success is just the story of the success of her society, of her people. And I think she she even mentions that while these things, these changes are happening on her farm and her region, um, with her collective, that these are happening all over the all over the country. And that like she, I think she says after her father's speech that people were afraid, but like these were com these conversations were being had everywhere. And I think that that's that's important to recognize. So, and that, I think that's why this work was so important to read because this isn't just a story of Pasha Angelina 
Pasha Angelina was an amazing worker and such an important part of the revolution. And she did such amazing organizing work. But like these stories are the stories of the success of an entire society and not just her. And it's, it's kind of like super inspiring to hear. And so after this maiden voyage, what happened was they just became a, a normally operating team. Like they would go and plow the fields as the other teams of men would go and plow the fields. And she says that speaking frankly, I lost the greater part of my earnings because of these other people's breakdowns. During that first year, I had less to my account as a team leader than I had when I was working as an ordinary tractor driver. But did I or any of the young communist leaguers of that period concern ourselves about our own personal interests? Our generation had been so brought up that we did not seek easy earnings or an easy road. So she really kind of was put in a position where she needed to take the reins behind this team. Like she, she needed to help people to learn and she would really put her team ahead of herself, which, yeah, it's just the same. It's like completely in line with like the spirit of the Soviet people in general. And she talks about the collective as a whole, all this change and work that they were doing and how, um, they did it because they wholeheartedly believed in this new direction that they were taking in the new society that they, that they were building, even though they hadn't reaped like material benefit of it yet. I felt like that was important to mention too, that like every person there was wholeheartedly convinced that they were fighting for something that was incredibly important for everybody. Yeah. She says at some point that they were really believing like, Tomorrow is going to be better than today. And the day after is going to be better than tomorrow. It was like a real optimistic time to be alive in the Soviet Union, at least. Yeah, even, even when she gets into the section about the Great Patriotic War and things were, were pretty dark, she describes people having that same feeling where they're saying, all right, well, you better be ready for this to be over because when the war is over, we're hopeful and we're ready to start building again. It's, it's like just a constant recurring theme among like the way she describes the Soviet so is it worth me covering what her thoughts on fame were, or do you think we've covered that already? Uh, I really love the poem that she included. Uh, she, like, I don't know, like, reading it is like, oh, that's, that's my, like, life motto, basically. Yeah, it's a nice one. Yeah, if you want an easy life and be on friendly terms with folks, keep your heart up very high and keep your nose down low. I really, really like that. Like, don't be prideful. Just be very humble and know that you're equal with everybody else. You're just a person. You're just doing what you want, like, doing what needs to be done. That doesn't make you better than anybody else. Yeah, I just, it's a really good uh, poem. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful message of just, like, love others and, and be humble. And then there's another part where she's talking about I think it's like a, a Ukrainian uh, saying, I, I might be butchering it, where she's talking about how fame is a high cliff that can be reached with the single flap of a wings. How like, you know, it's easy to get famous, but like to stay there because you deserve it and like to be famous because you deserve it is much different than to just like, you know, become famous one day because you, you did something. The reason, the, the respect that like she looks for, respect she describes the Soviet people is like, the kind of respect that constantly keeps outdoing itself. Like you're not just because you became famous doesn't mean you have to stop working. It means you have to keep working. And if you want to keep being famous, then you should probably keep being better. It's like a beautiful message of just like 
hard work and just like never thinking yourself better because you've accomplished one thing. Yeah. In her characteristic modesty, she kind of she disagrees with the with this expression of how you can reach fame with a single flap of the wings. But she says, like, maybe I've misunderstood it. Maybe I've not completely understood the meaning of this phrase. But for her, you needed to keep flying. Like like you were saying, you need to keep working. Like, what's the point on achieving fame and then stopping? Like, what's, what have you got from that? You need to keep working for the people around you and for your country. And, yeah, to, to pull everybody else up as well. And I kind of gathered that she didn't really see fame as a high cliff at all. That it was just, like why is it famous like why am i up on this cliff because all of us got here like this is society's success so why am i like on a pedestal this doesn't make any sense so i mean i understand that entirely as far as like an organizing perspective that's exactly the view everyone should have granted i mean some of us probably will go further and be like yeah i totally agree with that i'm i'm a piece of shit i'm only good in a group because <laughs> i know all of us have imposter syndrome so don't do that because the work you do is good. <laughs> but um, I think it's, that's kind of how I gathered it from her, is that it was like, high cliff, what do you mean? This isn't a thing that I have had, this isn't a success outside of society. I'm not above anybody. I liked that. Yeah, that's really true. And in her words, she says, sometimes I hear the word famous or celebrated uttered in connection with my name. The government has conferred high decorations and honourable titles upon me. There is even a Pasha Angelina Street in Stalino, and a ship that plies the Moscow Canal is named Pasha Angelina. I am proud of and cherish all this. To be famous in our country means receiving the people's highest appreciation of one's labour. Such fame is a great soul-elevating happiness. But I want to emphasise once again that everything that is said about me is primarily a tribute to my country. Anybody in our country who would dare to boast about his merits would simply be laughed at. I love her. I don't know if I've said this already. I love everything in this text. Yeah, and talking about being a tractor driver, she said she remained a tractor driver and she's proud of it. She says, I have remained a tractor driver and I am proud of it because in our country, every post is a high post. Only one must put all one's heart and soul into one's work. Even when working in the same inconspicuous job for many years, one need not stagnate, but push one's work far ahead grow, as it were, become more and more useful. This has been and is my object in life. And I guess the difference between doing that in a socialist country and doing that in a capitalist country is that when you're doing it in a socialist country, you are actually improving the lives of everyone around you and yourself. Whereas when you're in a capitalist country, you can be stagnating a inconspicuous job, as you would say, for many years. And it would just be sucking the life out of you and all the value from your labor would be going to somebody else. And it wouldn't be improving the life of anybody else except maybe a boss. Yeah. And what's more is if, if you are, in fact, improving a lot of times designed to be at the expense of your coworkers in a way that the capitalist is constantly trying to pit us against one another, break down that solidarity. You know, how we're, we're all constantly competing for the same promotion. I really want to draw a parallel here because of the situation we're in right now in the middle of this pandemic where we recognize that, you know, People are being labeled as essential or inessential employees, and we all recognize that like food service workers are 100% essential. But for so long, there's always this argument about like, oh, well, this, they don't deserve a living wage, or like, this is just a job that is supposed to be temporary, or this is just for kids, or whatever. 
and and completely every time I've had that conversation, I've always asked people like, why can't you be a cook forever? Like, what if you really love being a cook and you're really fucking good at it and you're feeding people? Why shouldn't you be able to afford to live? And I feel like that is just a concept that was understood, you know, by Pasha Angelina and by the people that she organized with and the society that she helped form. That was just understood that if you're providing something of service, if you're feeding people for the rest of your life, why is that not something that should be okay? Like, why is that not enough? That has to be enough. Every station has to be just as valuable as the other. As long as you're providing something of value to society, of course, dead labor, like something that contributes to individualism and not the collective, I understand that being something that, you know, uh, is not held to the same uh, regard as uh, something contributing to the collective. But I just want to make the connection because I think we specifically as workers at this time in history, we understand how completely undervalued people that do such important work are and this is it's so starkly like so so incredibly clear that that should never have been the case because people who serve us food should be able to survive right now so yeah just want to make that point that's a really important point to make it reminds me of maduro how he started off as a bus driver and now he's the president of venezuela like he came up from nothing to being the president of this country i think that's cool as shit it's cool as shit yeah and again in a similar spirit like he would he would say the same thing as pasha's been saying through this piece of how it's not through his individual achievements that he's managed to to reach this position it's through all of the society around him and all the people working together for the bolivarian revolution and so as we move a little further in the text we start to see the first the first instances of when Pasha understands how Soviet power works, or how she when she sees it for the first time, like with her own eyes. So, because of the success of her farming programs of building these teams of tractor drivers, she's called to the Kremlin, called to Moscow to attend a conference on agriculture. Well, like her part in the conference is based on agriculture. I'll just read the section off because her words for it are obviously going to be better than mine. Our leader, in conjunction with rank and filers from all parts of the country, was about to decide the future of the collective farm movement. I saw how glad Comrade Stalin was when any of the collective farmers made practical proposals and how attentively he listened to their counsels. To my surprise, I was asked what I thought the size of the individual gardens of the members of the collective farm should be. I thought of the village I came from and of the needs of our people and named the dimensions that I thought were right. Here one of the scientists got up and said in a cool and supercilious tone, that Comrade Angelina was allowing her imagination to run away with her. I felt so crushed that I dared not lift my head. That's what comes from barging into state affairs, I thought to myself. Suddenly, Comrade Stalin got up and formally proposed the very dimensions I had named. Our leader's backing greatly encouraged me and the other Kolkoshniks, members of the commission. This was our first lesson in statesmanship. During the recess, I met Comrade Stalin in the lobby. He asked me what my plans were for the future, and inquired about the affairs of our collective farm. I was so flustered that I think I did not answer to the point. I remember, however, that at the end of the conversation, I plucked up courage and said, on my word of honor, Comrade Stalin, we'll do 1,200 hectares per tractor. And then immediately afterwards, realizing that that's such a ridiculously high figure to aim for, like nobody's even dreamed of farming that much land before. And how the fact that 
she's made this promise that she's worried she won't be able to keep it because it's not entirely down to her. So she has to go back to her village later and tell her team about this. And a bit worried about their reaction. They're like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. We can do that easy. But I just thought it was a really interesting section, understanding how power worked in the Soviet Union and how you could have someone like Stalin, who is the head of state and he's just really revered by a lot of people in the country. At the same time, the people he wants to listen to in a meeting is the people whose lives are being affected by the decisions that are being taken. And if you compare that to, for example, meetings, I don't know, in the US, the UK, or any any Western democracy, like the people whose lives are being affected, they're not even at the table, never mind having their voices heard. Yeah, I, I really like that section, particularly the end of it, where she goes back to the, the community and, and they've already read the newspapers promised to farm all that land per tractor. And, and they were just like, yeah, fuck yeah, we're, we're going to do this. It's like a, a beautiful moment of like them saying like, yeah, let's, let's get after it. Is this when, oh wait, I might've fucked up. Did I? I think you're right. Yeah. When he, he I didn't even have to explain what I was talking about. <laughs> uh, the, the part where she, before she talks about, how much she thinks they could do. So she says, I walked to the roast room more dead than alive, as it were. I felt a lump in my throat. I could not utter a word. I looked dumbly at Comrade Stalin. He understood the cause of my agitation, and he said softly, so that I alone heard, courage, Pasha, courage. Those words became my guide after that. Whenever I found things very hard, whenever I had to start something new that involved great risk, I always recalled those words of Stalin's. Courage, Pasha, courage. And I felt more confident, and in spite of everything, I embarked on the new venture. Oh, that shit's so good. I love this, this text so much. Fucking <sighs> Santa. Yeah, so she said that before she met Stalin in the lobby and said, oh yeah, I promised this many things. And then she's like, oh fuck, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say like, this isn't the first time, com- uh, I was going to call him Comrade Stalin. He is a comrade. Comrade Stalin has said something like this to a woman comrade, like giving them courage to speak, not to be afraid. There's another story of a Jewish communist woman. I forget her name, but it's essentially the same thing where he's like, don't worry, you got, (laughs) this is me putting my own words to it, but he's like, don't worry, you got this. I will back you up. Like, I can't remember her name. But coming up after this meeting, I I think is, the next time she's attacked by Kulas, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. So yeah, after this meeting, she goes back to the countryside to continue her duties in agriculture. And she talks about how she's had further resistance, because obviously it's not, I mean, just because they managed to get a team together and they were they were working well, it's not like misogyny suddenly didn't exist or like or people were all of a sudden were like overjoyed to see women, uh, women farmers. So she was talking about how one day, as I was cycling to the fields, a feeling of a heavy cart behind me. I swerved off the road, but the cart swerved too. I turned to the right, and the cart turned to the right. I felt that I was being hunted, and that in another moment, something frightful would happen. Two enormous horses held themselves upon me. The heavy cart rolled over my body and then dashed off. I lay bleeding in a trampled farrow for several hours. I was picked up in an unconscious condition and taken to the hospital. 
The men who drove the cart were caught. There were three sons of Kulaks, as was revealed at their trial. They had deliberately run me over. It was said that I had become an obstacle in the enemy's path. I lay in hospital a physical wreck. I could not move, but what tormented me more than the pain was my anxiety about the work of my team. The crop would have to be harvested soon. How would the girls manage? One evening the doctor handed me a note which, he said, some girls had brought. They had been very persistent and had even tried to push their way into the ward in spite of the prohibition, he told me. It was an extraordinary note and it referred to exactly what was worrying me most. My companions wrote the following. In retaliation to the despicable sorties of our class enemy who attacked our pasha, this women's tractor team pledges itself to harvest 1,230 hectares per tractor and thus exceed its former pledge. This pledge was signed by all the girls. Just like all of them walk in, just like, yeah, if you want to with us, now we're going to double down. We're going to work even harder. And if you think you can stop us, no, we're going to produce even more. I love them. I think this is a perfect example of how women have to work twice as hard for the same amount of, uh, <laughs> for the same amount of respect as a man does. <laughs> but it's good. I'm really proud of these ladies. Yeah, you're definitely right, though. I mean, it's it's great for us to be able to like applaud their achievements and to say how difficult it must have been for them to do all these things. But the point is that it should never have been that difficult in the first place. But like, it was, and they overcame it. And we just need to all learn from that. And to every time we push back against, to push back harder. They didn't just manage to put out a, a number close to the crop yield that they were aiming for when that happened. They said, we're not going to achieve that. We're going to achieve more than that. And then they went and did it as well. This is definitely very relatable because from my own personal experience, when people were like, you're never going to go to college. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> then I got my bachelor's and master's. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you tell a woman you can't do that, she will definitely overachieve. I, I love that she says that she'd reported to Comrade Stalin that she fulfilled her pledge and then she offered to give a pledge and she comes home and then decides that, well, I guess we got to organize 10 new women's tractor teams. So because that's the like, next logical step, she's just an amazing organizer. Obviously, we need 10 more teams. Yeah, didn't Stalin say, cadres, Pasha, cadres. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and so moving through this, basically she had a period in her life where she was now gone from being a tractor driver to leading a small team of tractor drivers to being one of the people who was responsible for training new tractor drivers and building teams. She said that the party trained me and I learned from the party how to train the young people. My team is a real school. Over 100 comrades have passed through this school and are now skilled tractor drivers, team leaders and mechanics at the machine and tractor stations. And so after this, basically... She just continued working, as she mentioned, is her like attitude to life. She just kept working and working. And in December 1937, her countrymen and women elected her to deputy of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR. She said, before that, I had been an ordinary rank-and-file comrade, celebrated and honored, but a rank-and-filer. Now I was entrusted with the task of helping to administer our state. And she's, it's funny, she's like talking about how she didn't feel at all like ready to be the person who was, um, who was in charge of this stuff. Like, she was a farmer, not a not a politician. She wasn't someone who was used to being responsible for like I mean, she'd been responsible for tractor teams, but not for like a whole a whole area to govern. And so she says, I cannot help smiling now when I recall the confusion I was in during the first week of my activities as deputy. 
I even sat down and wrote a request to the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet. Please send me instructions or a written manual of some kind. I think that's great. She must have felt so out of her depth and she was to the point where she was like, can someone please tell me what to do? Because I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, I love the part where she's talking about like all these new, like weird tasks that have just, like all of a sudden come under and how she just plans to take it in stride the same way she to to plow a field in the same way she to to maintain the equipment and teach others to maintain theirs and plow their field. She's gonna learn this in the same you know, with the same spirit and I, I just love like the spirit like she approaches her work with throughout the whole you know, it's her whole autobiography here. Yeah, and because it's not that she was suddenly elected to a position in the Supreme Soviet and she she didn't know what to do. It's just she felt like she didn't know what to do. But the people around her obviously knew that she was competent. And so I think that's a really important distinction as well between the methods of governance between again between socialist countries and capitalist countries. Like in capitalist countries for example, I live in Britain and we've just got this real thing where people feel like we need to be ruled by some upper class person who's been to high edu- through high education and we just need some posh person telling us what to do. Whereas in socialist countries, they understand that workers can and should run the country. And so in that spirit, she actually did, she just worked as hard as she could. Every time she got a request, she tried to fulfill it. And I mean, no one's going to be able to fulfill every request, but she she worked as hard as she could and gave as much as she could to the people and was again recognized for this. And so she says that during the sessions of the Supreme Soviet, I closely studied the people who were sitting around me. Who are these people who are deciding the destiny of our country? I asked myself. Here were party officials and Korkozhniks, academicians and engine drivers, marshals and privates. Here were old and young, women and men, people from all nationalities. To put it short, they are the people, an aged deputy said to me when I discussed this subject with him one day. What the old man said was very true. To get the taste of the water from a spring, there is no need to drink a pitcherful. One sip is enough. To know what our Soviet people are like, there is no need to make the acquaintance of all the 200 million of them. It is enough to look at the chosen ones among them, the deputies. The newspapers often report the speeches of foreign statesmen who attack, quote, the ruling circles in the Soviet Union. The term ruling circles, quite applicable in Western countries with their Wall Street, City and 200 families, can only rouse a feeling of vexation among Soviet people. They say, the ruling circles in the USSR. Well, our ruling circle is not 200 families, but 200 million Soviet people, our entire people. I love the way she describes Soviet democracy, the way that, you know, the representative officials are actually representative. It's incredible. It's like a wild concept coming from bourgeois democracy. Yeah, for someone who spent their entire life as a farmer or a Soviet deputy, she has like a really poetic way of writing. She also said, just as the sun is reflected in a drop of water, so the great changes that had taken place all over the country under the Soviet government were reflected in the life of our little Starob Yeshevo, which was her own village. So like at this point, we're at right about what, the year 1938. And we're coming into the the period of the book where we're going to start worrying about the obvious, is the rise of fascism is is coming into a direct conflict with the USSR. People are starting to see this. And now Pasha is realizing that like all the work that she has done to make it so that women are more welcome within the workforce and more part of this new industrial agricultural workforce couldn't have come at a more a, a, a better time because now they're on the brink of war and and so much of the population is going to be sent off that they're going to need every woman, man and, and child that they can pretty much get to get out there and help, you know, keep people fed and keep 
the war effort moving forward. Yeah, she's talking about how the people in her home village, it just, just about the success of the collectivization efforts, basically, and how it completely transformed their normal lives. For example, one person in their farm had built himself a brick house with a sheet iron roof. Another had gone to Stellino to buy a motorcycle. A third was going to a health resort in Sochi. And a fourth was determined to send his daughter to a musical college. Actors and actresses from the Moscow Art Theatre visited Starob Yeshevo. The latest films were demonstrated in our village recreation club. All of this had become habitual. 20 years and even 10 years before the collective farms were established, the only thought that dominated the minds of the peasant poor was how to keep body and soul together today and to put a little away for the morrow. But then, as you're right, like they see this, they see the success of their collective efforts. And then I think at one point she says that we all knew that this would only last so long as there wasn't a war, but obviously there was a war brewing. Yeah, and once the war kicks off, I mean, she, she's in the Donbass of, of the Ukraine, immediately, like, first area of effect. So once the Nazis start pushing eastward, they need to get the hell out of there. Like, their whole their whole facility, all their tractors, they need to start heading east. And what she, like, even hesitant to call it a, uh, a refugee caravan, because we're moving to work. Yeah, I love that. She like obviously they were under threat of the most deadly war that our earth has ever seen. And their reaction to it wasn't like, oh shit, we need to get out of here. Like everything's sad. Let's pack up our things and we're never coming back here. She was like, right, take the tractors, take all your stuff with you, because we're going to go farm somewhere for a while and then we're coming back once we win, because we are going to win. And she mentions how absolutely nobody doubted that. The spirit of the people was so strong that there wasn't there wasn't a moment of doubt in people's minds that they were going to be victorious. And I think later on, she quotes something. She quotes somebody as saying something like, so long as each Soviet soldier kills one Nazi, then we will have won the war. And then she makes a parallel to that in reference to her farming as well. She's like, as long as each person just does their duty on the farm, then our whole society is going to be improved and it's like working well. I mean, she's a great writer. I will have butchered that completely, but something to that effect. And, and it's while she's in this uh, refugee caravan that she has the experience that I, I think Jess uh, spoke about, or was it Tadici, uh, had to confront this military officer who was about to not let them use the barge with their tractors and immediately is just like, what, you think we don't need these? What, you think we're going to lose the... And, and just, you know, just immediately shouts this guy down and, and kind of embarrasses her or him. But he immediately says, you know, hey, you're inspiring. Uh, tell me where you are when you go and I'll write you. Yeah. And in addition to that, seeing someone who had... Um... They had army motor trucks that had been stuck in a ravine, and like this, this guy was just so. They again, they like didn't treat it with respect initially because they saw like some farming woman in a big caravan full of tractors and farmers. And when this guy saw the deputy's badge, like deputy of the Supreme Soviet, the guy like started to obviously instantly respect her, and he was like, "Oh, I'm sorry for my rudeness, comrade deputy. You may proceed on your journey." And she said, without a moment's thought, I answered, "Are you mad?" proceed on our journey and leave you with all that ammunition stuck in the ravine. We decided that we must help the column out, come what may. We unhitched the wagon and the trailers with the children and the old folks and began to haul the stranded trucks out with our tractors. We worked until daybreak, almost up to our necks in mud. That very night in the cold wagon that used to serve our team as a repair shop, Lyolia, my younger sister, gave birth to a child. I just find it really interesting to hear all these stories of hardship and these people must have suffered a lot, but what comes across in the stories isn't the suffering, it's the, the overcoming of suffering. Yeah, it's like the determination of we've survived through so much shit, we're not even 
nothing will phase us. We got this if we just work together. So I was wondering, has anybody looked to see what the encyclopedia ended up printing as her entry? You know, I'm not sure. I can do a search for it at some point. I think the, the title of the encyclopedia is in the article. I'm really curious because that's a pretty amazing story. I used to read old encyclopedias as a kid, and sometimes there are really great stories in them, but nothing like this. So, yeah, it'd be amazing if we could find out what they said in the actual entry. It's probably something to the effect of what she said, you know, farmer married this year, you know, this many kids born of whoever. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's probably what it's going to be like. And I think she even understands that herself when she's writing this piece like with her final her final words towards it but before we get there so they've traveled eastwards expecting to go back to the ukraine when the war is finished which you know obviously eventually it will be over and soviets will be victorious in that battle but for i don't know for how long but possibly for a few years or so the people she traveled out there with had to go to an area in western kazakhstan to try farming out there and she talks about the difficulties they had, for example, the lack of fuel. There wasn't like proper gasoline to put into the tractors. There was only kerosene. And she admits that like she kind of pulled some strings by being a deputy of the Supreme Soviet. She said they managed to find some proper petrol for her to put in these tractors. But she was like, we needed it because we were inventing an or maybe not inventing, but implementing an entire new method of agriculture, which hadn't made its way out to the area that she was in yet. And she talks about like the little the little mechanical fixes she has, like making tweaks to the tractors, which makes them work better. But yeah, while she's out there, she, I think she receives a telegram or a message of, of some sort from Moscow saying a meeting of the Supreme Soviet is convening, like you need to come to Moscow immediately. And she looked at her mother who usually like wouldn't let her out of her sight. Do you know what I mean? She, w she wouldn't let her go into harm's way in any case. She was like, yeah, there's a war on. They need you to be here. You need to go immediately. So she's talking about traveling by train to Moscow and about being bombed or being attacked by, by German planes. And she even talks about giving birth like while, while under fire from, um, from the Nazi army. Do you want to know what's absolutely crazy for me reading this? It's like she doesn't talk about having a husband or anything throughout this whole thing. And then she's like, oh yeah, BT dubs, I gave birth. <laughs> <laughs> Like, that is just, I'm just so used to reading, like, uh, memoirs or, like, stories about women, and it's, they always relate them to a man. And then this one is just, like, all about her own accomplishments, everything that she has done, and there's, like, no mention of a partner. And I just thought that's, like, ugh, I just thought that was really cool. And she named her daughter Stalina after Yo. Stalin. I want to have a daughter just so I can name her Selena. <laughs> or, or a cat. Maybe a cat is more reasonable. <laughs> I named her Selena, and in that name, I put all my confidence in the future. That shit killed me. It killed and, me. And uh, she says at another point, one of her friend's daughter's name is Marxina. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> good communist names. So the rest of the main... The main portion of the text is focusing on, yeah, after focusing on the farming efforts in Kazakhstan and then going to this meeting of the Supreme Soviet and giving birth to her daughter, Stalina, 
she talks more about um, the, the people fighting for harvest. She says, you must not think that the members of the Zaporozhets Kolkhoz began to fight for a harvest only by working from sunrise to sunset, forgetting about eating, sleeping, and resting. Of course, we worked hard and did not mind how much time we put in, but success was determined not by physical effort alone, but by our knowledge of agricultural techniques, our ability to perform the various agricultural operations in the best seasons. I would say by our high level of collective farm culture, I have in mind excellent plowing for the spring crop. Quadruple cultivation, triple weeding, and many other operations that have become the rule at the Zaporozhets Kolkhoz. We practiced deep plowing so that the roots of the plants were able to gain strength and resist the drought. The collective farmers weeded the fields thoroughly and thus prevented the weeds from robbing the plants of precious moisture. It's by doing ordinary things like this that victory is achieved. And indeed, every year the entire Soviet Union rings with the names of new people who have worked magnificently and who only yesterday were unknown outside their village or factory. But every one of these men and women whose fame the country recognizes will say, the chief thing is not that I am a distinguished son of the people, but that I am the son of a distinguished people. I love that. Just again, just right along the same theme we've been talking about since the beginning is, is just people lifting one another up and trying to distinguish themselves inside of. I really, really loved the end. I think we're pretty much there, right? Yeah. yeah the only other thing that, that happens was them, them returning home after the war had finished, just seeing the devastated state that the land was in and obviously just taking note of all the people that they'd lost, like they'd be going back to the home, but not everyone would be going back to that home. And I mean, it's a story that must have echoed everywhere throughout the world towards the end of the second of the second World's War. But yeah, that last that last quote I gave was them um, kind of trying to reinvigorate the land and successfully successfully applying agricultural techniques to land which, like previously, had been really really susceptible to famine, or they'd been told that they couldn't grow crops at winter, and then after after they tried it like they were growing the majority of their crops at winter yeah there's a bunch of really cool examples of different farming techniques they had learned like over the years through their scientific plots and it's at this point in the text where she's talking about how when they come back to like such a devastated land all tractors stripped down and like they're trying to piece and part all these stripped out and you know bombed out tractors together until they realized we can steal parts off of these broken and down and blown up German tanks and they start stealing old German tank parts to get their tractors together. Really cool ingenuity. Yeah, just now we've uh, reached the end. Sorry, he can go. Sorry. <laughs> so she closes and I think she makes a, good, a lot of good points here at the end and then she words it so beautifully that I just wanted to read her words. Sorry, there's a lot of them. In America today, there's a lot of talk about war again. Various politicians in Great Britain and America are demanding that our country should be battered and smashed up with atomic bombs. I, of course, am not an expert in diplomacy. (laughs) Sorry. But like a good many Soviet people, I ask myself, why do these gentlemen want war again? Why do they want to slaughter our children with bombs to destroy what we are now restoring with such effort and perseverance? What is their aim? I think that the heat displayed by these warmongers is caused by the potent truth and light that emanates from our country, the light that no longer can be hidden from the common people all over the world by any Churchillian iron curtains, any more than the sun can be hidden by a curtain of gauze. We are not thinking of war. We are not preparing to destroy New York or kill Benjamin Martin's children. Our country ardently desires peace all over the world. Our representatives declare this official from the rostrum of the United Nations organization, but the bourgeois diplomats regard this as a maneuver in the part of the USSR. 
gentlemen, I assure you that our representatives are speaking on behalf of our people, and every one of our 200 million Soviet people will tell you the same thing. Our country wants peace. No atomic bombs. I'm speaking as the mother of three children will compel us to depart from the laws of life that we think just from our Soviet system. Every one of our 200 million Soviet people will tell you the same thing from the bottom of his or her heart. And this is what makes our country invincible. My little five-year-old daughter, Stalina, is playing by my side. She was born amidst the crash and war of an air raid over Saratov in that frightful year of 1942. My faith, like that of the whole of our people, is justified. Stalin saved my little daughter and millions of the children of the USSR. And believe me, not only in the USSR, but also in America, from the ferocious enemy of mankind. Stalin led us to victory and, believe me, saved the Americans from becoming acquainted with Hitler's new order. With Stalin, we look confidently towards the morrow. We will succeed in creating our ha happy morrow and will fight to defend it if need be. The guarantee of that lies in, in the 30 years career of our country. The guarantee of that lies in the careers of 200 million common Soviet people, including my own. This is what I have to say to my friends in the USSR and the people abroad about what I regard as the chief thing in the life of every Soviet man and woman, including my own. He says, if the editors of Biographical Encyclopedia of the World still wish to publish my biography, here it is. So um, I felt like that was just the, the conclusion of everything she says there. And I think it's important that we, as Americans, recognize the actual opinions of people that exist in the USSR because, you know, we're living nearly 100 years after this and nearly 100 years of anti-communist propaganda telling us that this is not how the Soviet people felt. She is such a badass. Every word of this whole text, I loved it. Yeah, I definitely agree. Because, I mean, obviously it's a product of its time, but by accident she's given us such an insight into the psyche of people in the Soviet Union, into like the way that people were living and the way that the government actually represents them and listens to them. It's like a direct democracy. And yeah, just, just personally, like she's, she seems like such a great person and she's got such humility. It's really, it's a pleasure to, to read her writings. I mean, it's such a shame as well. She died so young. She died about eight years after this text of cirrhosis in uh, Moscow. She only lived to be about 49 years old. And it's just really inspiring to see what a fulfilling life she led. Even by the age of like 20, she'd been, she'd been organizing for years already. I really think that by, by her example, she must have inspired a lot of people throughout the Soviet Union. And then, you know, hopefully, hopefully she'll become a bit more discovered and then more people will, will be inspired by her throughout the whole world as well. And I also want to make a point about, I wanted to make a point that as parents, it's sometimes extremely hard, well, sometimes it's always extremely hard to organize effectively and to be able to give as much to, um, you know, whatever movement that you're applying yourself to as you would like, because, you know, primarily your job is to, you know, help create, you know, a, a life for this child so that they have the tools to, you know, solve their own problems later on. But I just want to make a point to like, to say that parenting and being a communist parent is like not any small thing. And organizing is not any small thing. Kasha undoubtedly was organizing as such a young kid because her dad was, because her older brothers were, and because that was the life that she was aware of. Like she'd always believed in trying to fight for a better life for the people um, that, you know, toiled in the field should be getting the, the grain that you've 
that you've harvested and and she'd always known this because of the political life of her family and so i just want to encourage communist parents out there organizers to just keep at it because being a parent and being an organizer and being a communist is not any small thing and it makes all the difference to so many people so just uh that's not a small thing so you know huge props to pasha's dad and to pasha's mom as well and just all those parents just don't feel like you're not doing enough because just being a communist and being a good parent is is a lot that was great so that was my answer to an american questionnaire by pasha angelina thanks so much for listening bye bye <laughs> Thank you for listening to Red Book Club. If you'd like to reach out to us or to stay posted for episode updates, you can find us on Twitter at rbcpod, or you can visit our website at rbcpod.wordpress.com, where you can find our full episode list, along with resources such as ebook copies of the works that we're covering, and more. If you'd like to join or support the book club, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash redbookclub, where you can gain access to our Discord server, where we meet every Sunday to discuss what we've been reading. Thank you to the Craigbot for helping us to record and to Keenan for our intro theme. And a special thank you to our patrons for supporting us in making the podcast. Join us next time for more from our series on works by Marxist feminists. Stay safe and solidarity forever.